It's good to be back with you this morning, and a special uh, greeting and welcome to Dr. Toussaint and Max. Uh, I know you were here last week and I was away, but uh, it's always a privilege to be here and to uh, help and support, and uh, it's so nice to see you and uh, uh, spend some time together in God's Word this morning. I can't help but think that I did take, we are going to look at the book of Galatians this morning, uh, a subject that I studied at seminary from Dr. Toussaint, and just making sure I have all his notes here in a row so that I get these things uh, right. If you have your Bibles, make your way to Galatians chapter 2. I want to look just at a a key passage. Uh, It'll take us a little while to get there, but you can uh, make your way Galatians chapter 2. I'd spent some time preparing and, uh, and studying a, a, a passage and a book that I uh, love and I have uh, studied and, and taught in the past in uh, different uh, venues and so on. And uh, I came across a, a quote from Martin Luther that uh, was very instructive in our particular section of scripture. We're going to look uh, beginning in uh, verse 15, Galatians 2, beginning in verse 15. And uh, uh, Luther, when he was uh, writing on this He described this particular set of verses this way. This is the truth of the gospel. It is also the principal article of all Christian doctrine. This passage that we're about to study, it's the principal article of all Christian doctrine. We're in the knowledge of all godliness consists. Therefore, it is most necessary that we should know this article well. This article, this doctrine, this idea that Paul is going to communicate here uh, in, in our passage. Uh, we are to, uh, that we should know this article well, that we should teach it to others and beat it into their heads continually. And I have to confess, having studied Galatians in the past and, and uh, continuing to study it in preparation for this morning, uh, that it's a wonderful reminder for me uh, as Paul instructs these very, very uh, um, uh, precise uh, doctrinal statement as to uh, the center of the gospel. And I hope it is a, uh, a good reminder and, and a blessing and an encouragement uh, to you as well. It's helpful if we, uh, because the writing is quite technical here and, and we want to uh, be quite precise in our, in, in, as we work our way through, it's helpful to get some background and some context here. We're going to be talking ultimately about what does it mean to be justified. And I thought it would probably be helpful if we spent a little bit of time talking about the problem before we start to work towards the, the solution. And, and so the problem that we have is that uh, we are made in the image of a holy and righteous God. And as a holy and righteous God, a a perfected God, a God without sin or sinful thoughts or sinful tendencies, uh, a a God without all those things, uh, he has and wants to have nothing to do with sin. He he is not distant from sin. But as you know, uh, beginning with the Garden of Eden, as recorded in Genesis chapter 3, we have fallen. Adam and Eve and all of us in them have uh, a fallen sinful nature, and so we are born in sin and we are sinful, we have sinful tendencies, and so there is a distance, a separation between our God who is holy and us. And the real problem, you might want to say, well, that's fine, let God go over there and we'll be over here and and that'll be well, but a reminder, we are made in his image, and so we are really, if, if I could 
say it this way, we are made for him. We find our fulfillment in him. We, 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 we are designed after, after him in a way that, that to be connected to him, maybe is the best way to say it. And so there's this distance between us who are fallen, us who are sinful, and, and God who is holy. And, and, and just to kind of work that out on a practical basis, uh, we don't even, for example, have the right to pray to him. We, we have no business praying to uh, a holy God, a holy father, uh, with our sinfulness. Even if it was to confess our sin, we still don't have access. We don't have right, uh, the right to, to get to him. And so there has to be a way that we as sinful people can get access or, or return to or, or, or approach a, a holy and righteous God. And, and the word that we use to describe this, the word that Paul uses to describe this, is this word justified. We need to be made right so that we can approach God without our sinful nature, without our sinful tendencies. And this is the center and the core of Christianity, of Christian doctrine, of the Christian faith. And so that's why I chose this passage this morning. I thought if we are gathered together around God's word, let's try and pick something uh, real important to, to study and, and, and to, uh, to learn about. And so this is sort of that central idea. How do we who are sinful uh, get back to or approach or connect with a, a, a sinful, a, a holy God, our sinfulness and his holiness, how can that be brought together? It's more than that, but we'll start with that. Since we're starting in the middle of a book, uh, in this case uh, Galatians chapter 2, it's important to get a little bit of understanding about what this book is about. It is, uh, uh, as is each of Paul's letters, it is unique and different from other ones and so on. There's some background here that would be helpful, uh, even the story of how uh, Paul came to write this book. Uh, you remember that Paul uh, uh, began his life with the name Saul, uh, born in Tarsus, and uh, ultimately grew up uh, well-educated and became a Pharisee. And uh, you remember that uh, he had a life, and we'll return to Paul's sort of earlier life uh, in a little bit, but ultimately uh, Paul found Christ on the road to Damascus and uh, eventually became a, a, became a Christ follower and became uh, this apostle uh, doing the work of Christ and primarily going to the nations. Well, the book of Acts is the book that's going to give us sort of the story or the background where we're going to find Galatians. Uh, Paul ends up uh, being at a church in, in Syria, in a place called Antioch. And while he's at this church, and Barnabas is at this church, and they're gathered together, and they're praying, and they're fasting. And, and, and this is all new. Christianity is new. These are, these are believers who love the Lord. And, and they're like, what do we do? What are we supposed to do? We love the Lord. Uh, we, we, we want to see the church grow. We want to see Christ's name proclaimed. We want to see people find forgiveness of their sins. What do we do? And so they're fasting and praying. And in Acts chapter 13, the Holy Spirit leads them to set Paul and Barnabas off for the work of his service. And so this church in Antioch in Syria uh, uh, blesses uh, Paul and Barnabas and sends them on their way. Well, in hindsight, that sending on their way, we come up with a name for that. We call that a missionary journey. 
And as it turns out, Paul's going to make uh, multiple missionary journeys, and so we call that Paul's first missionary journey. And he and Barnabas make their way from town to town. Primarily, they look for um, uh, Jewish synagogues, Jews, where they can go and begin the ministry and speaking about who Jesus was, Jesus as a, a Jew and ultimately as the Messiah. In uh, sometimes there are Jewish presence and, and, and they begin there. Other times there, there are no Jewish synagogues and, and they simply begin preaching. Uh, often things go bad for them in the various towns and cities that they go. Uh, often they're thrown out of the synagogue and, and there's challenges along the way and undoubtedly you've read those. But their goal is ultimately to bring people to share the gospel, to bring people to Christ and begin uh, a new work, a new church plant. And so along the way in their journey, they begin to plant uh, churches, uh, town by town, city by city. This first missionary journey uh, uh, leads them into modern-day Turkey. And so the cities that they're visiting, another town called Antioch, not the Antioch that they came from, but a a different one, Poseidon Antioch, uh, Iconium, Lystra, Derbe, all in sort of modern-day Turkey, all would be uh, Roman uh, pagan cities. That means that the people there, they worship the pantheon of Roman gods. They didn't know Christ. Uh, they didn't know forgiveness of their sins. They were lost in the typical secularness of the, of the Roman Empire. Everything was sort of typically Roman with them. And Paul and Barnabas uh, go there and they plant these churches and this region is known as Galatia. There's some debate as to precisely where uh, the book of Galatians is written, and some would would suggest an alternate place, but it seems most likely that Paul and Barnabas, once they return to Antioch, will eventually write this letter uh, back to those churches that they were planting in Acts 13 and Acts 14. Uh, That's the churches of Poseidon, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. And so what we're getting when we're reading the book of Galatians is a little bit like hearing one side of a phone call. We don't know what the other side is saying, but we know how Paul is responding. And the interesting thing about the book of Galatians is Paul is very, very strong. As a matter of fact, I think it would be fair to say he's quite agitated. And, and, and so the book starts off hard and strong and fast and, 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 and precise. And, and, and we can sort of make from that what has happened. You see, the book of Galatians is going to deal with this problem uh, that has come up in these churches that Paul and Barnabas had, had planted. And the problem is that these, these Jews, uh, they'll ultimately take on the name or we'll call them Judaizers, have come to say that um, Paul, we, we like him and, and, and he's a good guy and everything and we're glad that he shared with you the gospel. Um, but I don't think he quite finished. He, he, he gave you sort of the beginning, the start, and we want to help you understand how to, how to you know, fully be saved maybe or, or, to, or to remain in your salvation. That is, you really need to begin these Jewish practices. Uh, you need to be circumcised to be saved. And maybe Paul never got to that part. We're not sure, but, but, but this is what you need. And, and you need to celebrate the Jewish festivals, the Jewish calendar. You must keep, you, sorry, you must keep the Sabbath and, and, and celebrate uh, the Jewish calendars, the Jews do, and your dietary uh, rules, you need to follow Jewish dietary rules. And so what had happened is that these young churches who had come to faith in Christ through the ministry of Paul and Barnabas and the work of the Spirit were now being challenged that maybe they weren't fully saved, maybe they weren't completely saved, that, that there was more to it and that Paul hadn't given them the whole story. 
It, it seems to be that they were attacking uh, who Paul actually was because Paul spends a lot of time defending uh, who he is. And the attack probably went something like this. You know, you got to hear the gospel from, from one of the, the real apostles, uh, Peter, you know, Matthew, Andrew, those are the guys who, who walked with Jesus. Uh, they were with Jesus. They saw his miracles. Uh, Paul, uh, he, he wasn't there. Uh, he's kind of like a tier two, uh, junior varsity, right? He's up and coming. He's doing well and everything. But you really got to get the whole gospel. You got to get, you got to, get to, 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 to Peter. You, you got to get the gospel from, from, from James and from Matthew and from Andrew, from the, the real apostles. And, and so it seemed that there was this, this undermining of, of the very person who had brought to them the gospel. I just want you to think about this for a moment, what that must have been like. Because I, I sympathize with the people who received the letter of Galatians. You see, uh, these people were young in the faith. And they had begun to see the transforming work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. They were beginning to see undoubtedly marriages being healed and lives being made full. And, and finally the feeling of forgiveness and, and right standing before God. Because they had come to embrace Jesus as their savior. And yet they were new, they were young, they were not Jews, and so they didn't have some sort of a a background in Old Testament history. They hadn't spent their lives uh, reading Genesis and Exodus, reading Isaiah and Jeremiah, reading Psalms and Proverbs. They, They had no background like that. And yet they found this salvation and it was wonderful. And lives were being made whole. And then to come along and say either you don't fully have salvation or maybe that you, you, you have, don't have a way of maintaining salvation unless you, you do this and you do this and you do this and you follow these Jewish practices. Well, I have to admit, I would probably think at this point, better safe than sorry, right? I mean, that's not what Paul said. But if all I have to do is Jewish dietary laws and, 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 and this and that, and, and, and maybe that's what we should do because I'd hate to get salvation wrong. Does that make sense? You'd hate to think that you're saved only to find out the person who shared with you the gospel didn't, well, didn't do a complete job or, or, or maybe didn't tell you all that there was to know or what it was like to maintain a, a status of salvation. And so this is what's going on after Paul and Barnabas have left. Someone is undermining their ministry. How many of you have ever been part of a church plant? Maybe even here at Stonebriar or whatever, a church plant of some sort? Many of you? Yeah. You know that there's a special relationship between a pastor and, and, and a, a church flock, especially when they start from beginning. Often beginnings are meager and small and so on, and, and, and it takes time to grow and build and develop and friendships uh, 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 build, and, and uh, uh, often there's a lot of work and kind of everyone does everything, right? That's sort of the starting way that many churches uh, start to, and begin with, and so there's this special bond, and some Someone is undermining the relationship between these new young Roman pagan believers that have now come to Christ and are no longer Roman pagans, and 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 of uh, of their pastor who had uh, preached the gospel and brought the good news to them. And so Paul begins to write. 
But the letter that he writes also reflects a little bit of his background. You remember the story that he was originally Saul of Tarsus and that he was trained as one of the great legal minds. His, excuse me, his area of expertise would be what we would call the Old Testament for them, the Hebrew scriptures or the Torah. Uh, From Genesis to the book of Malachi, he would be an expert, a a legal expert trained in the the law and in the understanding of the text. And, and, And his area of expertise showed him that clearly the law, the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures did not point to Jesus as Messiah. That was his understanding, that Jesus was not the Messiah. And so people who were misreading the Old Testament, his area of expertise, they needed to be stopped because there were people who saw Jesus as Messiah. There were people who were going to follow Jesus as the fulfillment of prophetic passages in Isaiah and Jeremiah. And this legal expert, an expert of the law, knew that they were wrong. And so he felt it was his responsibility to to deal with these people as severely as he could. It seems that Paul was one of those guys that on a scale of 1 to 10, everything he did was a 13. Right? He, just, he seemed to be all out on everything, right? I mean, so if these guys are wrong, they're, they're really wrong, and I'm going to go after them. And so he found himself as a persecutor of believers, of Christians, of followers of Jesus, and primarily they're Jews at this point who are following Jesus. Not exclusively, but primarily Jews. And so Paul is out to get these Jews who see Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament, And so he finds out at one point that, you know what, there's more of these folks in Damascus. He's like, let's go to Damascus and let's deal with these folks. And so on the way to Damascus, he finds out his law degree was wrong. He meets Jesus, right? And you remember the story recorded in the book of Acts, recorded actually three times in the book of Acts to, to show you the importance. Saul encounters Jesus, and Jesus says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And, and Saul is like, who are you? Who, who are you, Lord? And Jesus says that it is I am the one who you are persecuting. And, and, and Saul is blinded by the experience, led to Damascus the rest of the way without sight. Uh, uh, God sends a man named Ananias to, to interact with Saul, and Saul comes to receive Christ as his Savior, and the Spirit enters him, and he comes to this astonishing fact that everything he knows is wrong, Right? I mean, he's an expert in the law, and he was sure that the law pointed to Jesus not being the Messiah, and as it turns out, Jesus is the Messiah. What he understood was wrong, and so he is forced to rework his education in his mind, which, by the way, is one of the big challenges of people who are ardently against Christianity when they come to faith, those who come to faith, it's undermining everything they ever thought. When they always thought Jesus was not the way, and as they come to find out that Jesus is the way, it's a, it's a complete radical transformation of thinking. And Paul, who eventually is going to go by the name Paul now, is going to have to do that. He's going to have to rework everything he learned to find out Isaiah 52 and 53 is talking about Jesus, is pointing to Jesus. He's going to realize that his understanding of Old Testament law was wrong. And that, and that ultimately Jesus fulfills the law and that Gentiles can come to faith without becoming Jews. 
And so Paul becomes the perfect person God appointed to reach the Gentiles. So you can imagine, there's a little bit of hostility, there is some anger, there is, there is sadness, there is hurt, as Paul, who already made this mistake himself, misunderstanding the law, uh, in his own past, had come to set these people free by giving them the gospel. They receive the gospel, they're freed, and now someone wants to, if you will, tie them down. Tie them back to the Jewish law. Paul himself had been tied down that way and was set free, and now someone else is doing it. So there is, there is hostility and anger. Let's put it this way. Paul always says thank you at the beginning of every letter, except Galatians. No time for thank you. No time for his prayer of thanksgiving. He gets right to the issue. It's interesting, if we took the time and you read Galatians 1, the first thing he does is he gives you his day timer. Because the thinking was, Paul learned the gospel from the brothers in Jerusalem, and so you know how it is when you get secondhand information, it's never complete. It's not, uh, you don't get it all and you don't retain it all, and so uh, the gospel comes from, from Christ to the apostles, from the apostles to Paul, from Paul to these churches, and so these churches are getting a little bit of a watered down version, or maybe just an incomplete version. And so Paul pulls out his pages from the daytimer and goes through this long explanation of you need to know I haven't been in Jerusalem. I mean, there was these 10 days and I saw Peter and I saw James, but other than that, I haven't been there. How on earth could I have gotten the gospel secondhand when I haven't spent any time with the apostles? And then the only time I was in Jerusalem that Peter affirmed the very message I was preaching. And so Galatians opens up with this day timer that Paul is telling these churches, how on earth could I be a tier two, a junior varsity uh, apostle when I never got my gospel message from Peter or from Andrew and my only interactions with those guys were interactions of affirmation that we are preaching the same thing. My gospel comes from Jesus, not tier two, tier one. And so the Galatians opens with this, with this um, defending of his, of his message, of his, uh, of his apostolic authority, a defending of the gospel that he preaches is the same gospel that Peter preaches. It's the same gospel that James is preaching. That's the idea that, that he comes forward. So the first thing he does is he brings defense to the very thing that he had shared with these churches. And, and then he shares, and, and we'll skip this point, but many know it, at the beginning of chapter 2, he shares a time when he confronts Peter. Peter comes to visit Paul and Barnabas and the rest of the folks up in Antioch. Peter's in Jerusalem, makes the journey north to Antioch, uh, visits these uh, brothers, and, and this church is really being uh, founded by many, many Gentile believers. And so Gentile believers uh, aren't following Jewish dietary laws. And Peter has already had, if you remember, in Acts chapter 10, he has this experience with Cornelius. Uh, he has a vision given to him from God where God calls him to eat everything that he sees and he sees food that is unclean and, and God says eat and Peter says, well, no, I'm not going to eat that food is unclean and God says ultimately what I have made clean, don't call unclean. And he comes to see that Cornelius receives the Holy Spirit. And so the receiving of the Holy Spirit is the affirmation of salvation. And he sees Cornelius receive the Holy Spirit and not have to become a Jew. And, and, and so Jews kind of assumed probably that 
to become a believer, step one, become a Jew, step two, believe in Christ, and, and you're there. And he saw Peter go right to step two without ever having to do step one. And so when Peter goes with, uh, to Antioch and visits Paul and Barnabas and the other Gentiles, well, Gentiles eat like Gentiles, right? Bacon every morning. And so what's Peter doing? He's eating his bacon. And James sends other Jewish brothers there to see what's going on in Antioch. And all of a sudden, Peter stops. Uh, I, I don't eat bacon. And, and so all of a sudden, he was eating with the Gentiles, and then he stopped because other Jews were there, and he didn't want to look like he was violating the Jewish dietary law, and so he stops, and now he's two-faced, right? I'll eat with you, I, I, I won't eat with you, right? I, I, I support you, I'm different from you. And Paul confronts him. And so why is Paul recording the confrontation that he has with Peter? To remind his audience he's not tier two. He's not a junior apostle. He's not an up-and-comer. He's not a rookie still learning the ropes. He has been given the gospel by Christ. Peter has been given the gospel by Christ. And when Peter lives outside the gospel message, Paul is willing to confront Peter to his face. And so Paul records all of that, which leads him then after this conversation with Peter or this, this description of his conversations with Peter, it leads him to this particular passage. Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse 15. We, and I'll just start there, we is still this Paul and Peter, uh, that's the idea here, we are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles. Uh, I'm sorry, we who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too put our faith in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because the works of the law, no one will be justified. Verse 17, but if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves among the sinners, doesn't that mean Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. The strongest force, no way, under no certain terms, absolutely not. Verse 18, if I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law, Paul writes, I died. Now, don't forget who's writing. This is one of the great legal minds that, that grew up only to find his legal understanding was wrong. Uh, he is, uh, if you will, straightened out by encountering the risen Messiah, Jesus. And, and so now as he has relearned the law, no one's going to be more technical than Paul that he gets this part right. So this is a legal expert expressing in the most careful terms what is going on here. Verse 19, uh, for through the law I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. You can see it's one of these packed passages that Paul writes that he's trying to make sure that the churches understand their relationship between Judaism and Christ. This idea that they don't need to become Jews 
to be believers, which is essentially what the Judaizers have come and suggested. You need to be Jews. You need to be circumcised. You need to practice a a Jewish calendar with the Jewish celebrations and the Jewish uh, uh, um, observance of the Sabbath. You you need to uh, uh, eat the way Jews eat, seeing certain foods as unclean and and, uh, not able to eat. And, And so Paul is trying to bring this correction. So these are people he dearly loves, and is very concerned about in light of how his teaching has been undermined, and and also feels the weight of his background of also having understood the law to be something different than what it was, and that it actually does point to to Christ. And so all of this comes together in in this very important passage. So let's just sort of work our way through it carefully and see if we can help to bring some understanding as we see what Paul is writing. Verse 15, we who are Jews by birth are not sinful Gentiles. Uh, Know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So he begins by making this point that Jews agree that you can't be reconciled to God. You can't be justified to God. You can't be made right to God simply by works. The only thing is that Jews wouldn't agree. Right? Well, we have some interesting things. He's talking about Peter, and he says, we who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles. So you start to see how they view Gentiles in this Jewish mind. Gentiles are, by definition, uh, sinful. Well, why would Gentiles, by definition, be sinful? Well, in the Jewish mind, you, you have, of course, the way you are tied to Abraham's blessing. God promises that he will bless Abraham. And the way you can receive that blessing is to tie yourself to Abraham. That's done symbolically by a sign of the covenant. The sign of the covenant in the Old Testament is circumcision. So Jews are circumcised. Gentiles are not. That means Gentiles are not tied to the promise of blessing uh, to, to, uh, to Abraham. So they start off sinful. Okay? Because they're not Jewish, they're starting off sinful. And then they don't practice dietary laws, and so they're eating unclean foods as if they were clean. Uh, that's sin. Uh, they are not celebrating the, the, taking the Sabbath day of rest. They are violating the Sabbath, and so that's sin. And so the best way to describe Gentiles is just sinful. Right? Sinful Gentiles. That's, that's how we see them. They're one and the same. You're a Gentile, you're sinful. In other words, they see themselves as different. One of the challenges that we have when we uh, look at uh, the Bible and understanding the law is the Bible records a lot of people and a lot of events and situations where the people, the characters in the story, in the story misunderstand the law. Uh, the Old Testament Israelites, they come to think that maybe if they obeyed the law, they could be right with God. Now, that is an incorrect understanding, but it was some of their understanding through some of their history, and that is recorded in Scripture. And so we read these incorrect understandings. The Pharisees thought that their understanding of Sabbath and their understanding of Jewish law was the correct understanding and that they were right. They were holy. They were righteous. And so you see this clash in the Gospels between Jesus and the Pharisees, and often, what do they clash about? Jewish legal practices. They clash about Sabbath. How dare you heal on the Sabbath? 
How, how dare you? What the Pharisees are trying to preserve is their understanding of the Sabbath. And, Jew, and, and Jesus is healing on the very day that they uh, want to say that that would be an act of work. And, and, and so they clash on that. They clash on dietary laws. I can't believe, Jesus, that your disciples don't wash their hands. They come to clean food unclean. Not, not the symbolic, not, not the literal that their hands are full of dirt and they didn't wipe them off. The symbolic, they didn't follow the symbolism the way we understood the symbolism. And, and so what you have is this clash between the Pharisees and Jesus on all these Jewish practices. And ultimately, Jesus is bringing understanding that that, that is surprising everyone. We, we see that in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, he says, you heard that it was said, and goes on to describe uh, Old Testament law and Old Testament practices like do not murder. And then he says, but I tell you, and then, then he looks at the heart issue, uh, that, that the heart of, uh, of murdering is anger with your brother. And if you're angry with your brother, well, that's just like murdering. It's the same thing. And, 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 and so they're surprised by his law, uh, his understanding of the law. And, and so when we come as believers, coming, if you will, after the fact, after Christ's death and resurrection, we look back and we see and read about many different people's misunderstanding of the law. The Pharisees' misunderstanding, many of the Jews in the Old Testament, Israel's uh, misunderstanding of the law through some of her history and so on and so forth. And so it, sometimes it means then that we don't understand it or a simply that we don't read it because we recognize we're not under it in the way that the Jews once were. Well, Paul wants us to be really, really careful here. And so here's how he describes, we who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified, not made right, not made to be able to come to a holy God in their sinful state through the works of the law. In other words, you can't earn your way up from your sinfulness to a place of righteousness that you then have access to God. There is no way to do that, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So he begins uh, that way. A, a couple of passages, our, our understanding probably is that Galatians was the first letter that Paul wrote. Romans will come later, and if our understanding is correct there, then this passage, Romans chapter 10, verse 3, uh, Paul would later write, and he says, since they do not know the righteousness that comes from God, they sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. They sought to establish righteousness of their own. What we've been talking about is the ancient context of Galatians, but the meaning is present day. If you went to the average person in Frisco who's not a believer or, or Plano or Little Elm or Richardson or McKinney or wherever we might go, if you ask them, are they going to heaven, you'd often get an answer like this. There would be some who would deny the existence of God and some who would deny the existence of heaven, but most would say something like, well, well, sure, I'm going to heaven. I've been a good person. In other words, I am justified by my own works. That's what people say. Or if they don't think that they have enough goodness, then they point to someone else and they say it's something like this. Well, yeah, I think I'm going to heaven. I mean, I'm not like that person, right? So you take a person who has lots of sin that's very evident and you, you show you're at least one up from them. So if they're not going, it probably would make sense that I'm going. And this is what our world has always struggled with. 
this idea of self-justification. Somehow you can make yourself right with God by doing something, giving something, holding something, attaining something, climbing a certain set of stairs, performing some act, doing something regularly, facing the east, facing the west, whatever it might be. We've always tried these various ways that it's not just an American thing or a Canadian thing. It's not a recent thing. We've been doing this all through our history. Somehow I can fix my problem. And it stems from the fact that we misunderstand the problem. You see, my biggest problem, me personally, is me. I'm the problem. I'm the reason I'm sinful. And so if I'm the problem, I can't also wear a second hat of being the solution. If I, I didn't need a solution if I'm not the problem. If I simply wouldn't be so sinful, I wouldn't need a savior. But I'm the problem. And if I can say this, you are the problem in your lives, we all are our biggest problem. Right? We are the reason that we're sinful, and so we need something outside of us to solve the problem because we are, well, we are the problem. And so the idea, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, the, the idea is, I mean, I can't be your savior. I'm already sinful. You're sinful. I can't deal with your sin. You can't deal with mine. So we're going to need something beyond us, outside of us, that can somehow bring salvation. And so Paul is beginning to articulate this. We Jews, notice what he's saying by birth, not sinful Gentiles, know that a person is not justified, not made right by works of the law. The works of the law never make us right, but by faith in Christ Jesus. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Okay? Paul is loosely speaking about something that's addressed in Psalm 143. Let me read Psalm 143, verses 1 and 2. It's a psalm of David. O Lord, hear my prayer, David writes. Listen to my cry for mercy. In your faithfulness and righteousness, come to my relief. Don't bring your servant into judgment, for no one living is righteous before you, David writes in this psalm. David knows. David knows even as a man after God's own heart, no matter what he does, he hasn't earned his way to God. The folks in the Galatian region that are receiving this letter, whoever they might be, they haven't earned their way to God. Judaizers who are circumcised and, and, and who practice dietary laws and who celebrate and observe the Sabbath and the, the Jewish celebratory festivals, they don't earn their way to God even by doing those things. No one does. No one can be made right by what they do. And so Paul wants to be very, very careful here. We too have put our faith in Christ Jesus. Undoubtedly in Paul's mind, he's thinking, and what a fool I was for so long being against Jesus' followers, against the church. As a matter of fact, Paul will later write in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 9, he says, I am the chief among all sinners because I persecuted the church. He realizes his entire area of expertise, law, He got it backwards. That the law pointed to Christ. It was fulfilled by Christ. And he thought it it wasn't. And so then he begins to explain this here. Uh, he, he, He goes and he's kind of building here as he's explaining. No one, Old Testament or New. And and here's just a quick illustration. Our time is limited, but just a quick illustration uh, of how the language of the Exodus, which is sort of the pinnacle event in the Old Testament, 
where God delivers his people from Egypt, from, from, their, sinful, from their slavery in Egypt, and is going to bring them to their promised land, the language that is used to record the event of the Exodus, the deliverance, is the language of redemption and salvation. And then furthermore, the act of the Exodus of God delivering his people then is repeated over and over and over. It's repeated in the Psalms. It's repeated in the prophets. It's repeated throughout the the Old Testament that the Exodus is this event that you can look back on and see God save his people. God saves his people through the ten plagues, through Moses' leadership, through the dividing of the Red Sea, through the walking, through the closing of the Red Sea on the, on the Pharaoh and his army. Uh, God saves Israel, and then he gives them the law. There is no possible way that Israel could be saved by the law because they were already saved. God saved them, God gives them the law. The law was never designed that somehow by keeping the Ten Commandments that that would make them right. And so we tend today to often have kind of a negative view. You say law, I mean, what if we would have said, hey, for the next 19 Sundays, I want to come here, and I want to talk to you about law, right? All of a sudden, that trip to Florida, it just fits perfectly in those 19 weeks, doesn't it? It just kind of fits right in there, right? It doesn't sound attractive. Think of the law this way. Think of Old Testament law this way. This is, it's more than this, but it's at least this. Old Testament law, when you read the law, when you read the Ten Commandments, when you read all that the law entails, the case laws and, and all the details, the, all of the law is fulfilled by Jesus, right? Jesus keeps the law. He didn't come to abolish it. He came to keep it, fulfill it. The law gives us a picture of our Savior, The law is not a very good picture of me. I break the law. But the law gives us a picture of what Jesus is. Jesus never has other gods before the one true God. Jesus never takes God's name in vain. Jesus always honors his father. He doesn't covet or murder. The law is fulfilled by Jesus. So at the minimum, at the very minimum... Old Testament law is a beautiful portrait of what Jesus is and what Jesus is not. Verse 17, but if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves among the sinners, doesn't that mean Christ promotes sin? The idea here is this idea that somehow if what Paul was saying was true, that if Jesus really can can make us right, and that is what's going on, that Jesus' death is sufficient to pay for our sins so that when God looks at you and when God looks at me, what he sees is perfection, not because we're perfect, at least I'm not. My wife's here. She'd come up and testify that I'm not perfect. But but God sees me as perfect because around me is clothed Jesus' righteousness. And so God looks at me and sees Jesus' righteousness, and Jesus says, hey, Rome, give me your sinfulness. And that's what he takes to the cross, right? And so I can approach, boldly approach the Father's throne in prayer. I can come directly to the Father. I have no access to the president. I have no access to our governor. I have no access to anyone except the king of all the universe. Because I am clothed not in my wretchedness, but in Christ's righteousness. Which means that it's all him, 
and it's not me. I am made right because I am trusting Christ's righteousness to envelop me. Does that make sense? That's where our righteousness comes from. So I'm completely righteous before God, not because I'm perfect. I'm a work in progress. It's the work of the Spirit continuing to convict and to lead and to guide and to mold and to break and and all the things that the Spirit does. And yet I have access to the Father and I come to him perfected, not because I'm perfected, but because by faith in not Jewish legal practices, not dietary laws, not circumcision, but by faith in Christ Jesus, I can approach. Verse 17, but if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we find ourselves among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? In other words, if we really believe this, doesn't that mean that we could live any way we want? By no means, absolutely not, completely impossible. The idea means you don't understand what Christ is doing. So Paul is going to explain that. And then he just makes the point here, if I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. And Paul was a lawbreaker. Or Saul was a lawbreaker. Maybe that would be a better way to say it. And, and, and so we are being freed from the law, but let's figure out what does that mean. So he explains, 19, for through the law, I died. You have two options. Keep the law perfectly. It's fine if that's what you want to do. Go ahead and do that. Unfortunately, you've already violated it when you were born. Born with a sinful nature and sinful tendency, and then you, of course, act on that sinful nature by acting sinfully. But nonetheless, theoretically, you could just keep the law, or you can't be under the law. Because if you try and keep the law and you fall short, then you fall away. For though uh, through the law I died, Saul, dead. Paul, dead. I died to the law so that I might live for God. Paul's not under the law. Paul is not concerned about bacon anymore. Jewish dietary practices, yeah, don't eat bacon. But Paul is not saying, embrace the gospel, have Christ forgive your sins, and don't you ever eat bacon. You never have Christ saving you, and then you earning or maintaining your salvation. If your salvation is based on you maintaining it, well, we all can answer that question for ourselves. And so, Paul Died to the law. This is a lawyer who is trained in the law. This is him submitting his entire academic career saying, that's not what I am. I'm not under that, that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ. Uh, no, you haven't. Right? Who was crucified with Christ? Well, those were two thieves. And if Paul was crucified with Christ, he wouldn't be writing Galatians. So Paul wasn't crucified. Paul was crucified with Christ. I I am, he wasn't even talking past tense, he's talking present tense. I am and remain crucified with Christ. So he's not talking about literally, we know that Christ died between two thieves, right? And so Paul is not somehow making some kind of thing, I was one of those guys. No, he's saying something a little bit different. He's talking about death to the law and, 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 and describing how that works. I have been crucified, present, ongoing with Christ, and I no longer live. So we've got Paul dead to the law, 
and now we've got Paul no longer living. But Christ lives in me. This is the idea. This is why we are justified. This is why we are made right before God. Because we take an act of faith. Our faith is not without content. It's not like Christianity is not just believe. That's not Christianity. That's called craziness. Okay? We don't just believe. We believe that what Jesus did died on the cross for our sins, conquered death and resurrection, three days later ascended to the right hand of the Father. And who Jesus is, the Son of God, fully God, fully man, is sufficient to have him wrap his arms around us that we can be made right before God. That is Christian faith. Faith, belief with specific content. Jesus is able. Jesus is willing. Jesus is sufficient. And so he, Paul is describing this. The way I have done this, this legal language is I've died to the law that I might live for God. I've, I'm crucified daily on an ongoing basis with Christ so that I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Christ the fulfiller of the law. Christ the keeper of the law. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. This is what faith is. Faith is specifically in Jesus, in who he is and what he has done, so that Paul no longer feels that the, the withholding of bacon eating is somehow beneficial for his salvation. Right? That's what he's saying. It's not now me trying to keep the law. And so if it's not for me, it's not for you, churches. He is undermining the teaching of the Judaizers because our faith in Christ sees Christ as sufficient. And so he says, the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. Okay, well, what would set aside, setting aside the grace of God look like? It would be like, hey, it's great that Christ died. I'm going to earn my way to God. I'm going to keep the Jewish law. I'm going to practice the appropriate dietary practices, and I'm going to celebrate the appropriate festivals. In other words, if law-keeping somehow made you right with God, then Jesus, you just wasted a whole afternoon on the cross. And what were you doing? How insulting is that? And so Paul says this, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Implication, by no means did Christ die for nothing. If anyone knew that this legal expert who got the entire law wrong originally knew. And then he came to faith in Christ. And so I think Luther is right. At the center of this passage is this central understanding of what Christianity is, of which everything hangs. I don't know about you, but I like to make deals with God. I do something wrong and then I earn his favor back because I do good things for him. And it's foolish. I can't earn my way back to God. I never earned my way there in the first place. Christ's sufficiency got me to God, made me right with God, and always maintains that relationship with God. Never me. 
And so it's interesting, the church has not primarily struggled with issues of circumcision or Jewish dietary practices. That's not the history of the church, but the church has always struggled with legalism, hasn't it? We've always thought if we just do in this culture this thing and in that culture that thing and over there 151 years ago this thing over here and, and we struggle with legalism and Paul is trying to articulate in the most certain terms our faith, our salvation, our justification, our being made right with God is entirely through the work of Christ. Father, what a privilege it is that you have saved us through the work of your son. And what a wonderful reminder as we could spend hours and hours looking at various texts by Paul and many others who describe this for us. Help us to live in this crucified condition, this idea that we die with Christ on an ongoing basis so that he lives in us, so that as we live our lives, those around us would see you would be drawn to your son and to his righteousness. We've already confessed, Father, we live in a lost and broken world. And the solution, Father, is your son. He's been the solution for our own lives, and he is the solution for those who do not yet know him. So help us to testify, to bear witness to the truth of the work of Christ in our own lives, that we might be living sacrifices holy and pleasing to you, and that others might come to find forgiveness of their sins, that they might be justified. In Christ's precious name we pray, through the power of your Spirit. Amen.